Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so I see some familiar faces here, some some recent faces, as a matter of fact. So, uh, and then folks I don't know at all, and I'm equally glad to see all of you. And it was interesting to see how the room filled up after the sitting. So some of you are here for the talk, and some of you. Uh, are here for both. So let me start by asking, how many of you are here because of the topic in particular? Come on, put them up, put them up. Okay, great. This is an interesting one. I recently uh, had the opportunity to do a five-day bhavana teaching session at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies on the five spiritual faculties. And I learned a lot in the process of preparing the material for that and really thinking through some of the issues, in particular some of the issues related to how practice is actually powered. And this is an important point So tonight in the exploration, we're going to be doing a blend of me presenting information and you considering for yourself what's actually going on in approaching this topic of identifying what your motivation is for practice. So let me start at the beginning by talking about some common motivations for practice, things that... uh, can tend to bring people into practice. So the first, of course, is an experience of suffering. So this would be anything from total devastation of everything that's going on in your life to um, existential despair to loss of a relationship to loss of health to... Uh, a sudden experience of uh, the radical truth of impermanence to more medium-scale or small-scale experience of suffering, stress, anxiety, um, those kinds of things. So suffering is a motivation to approach practice, to approach the Dharma. So a second common motivation for going towards the Dharma or checking out the Dharma is seeking something. There's a kind of wondering if there's something more, something more in terms of potential, something more in terms of happiness for yourself, perhaps some upgrade of a particular kind of skill or uh, perhaps a mind that's more steady, uh, more malleable, maybe even a better tool at work or school. So that's the the wanting aspect of going towards practice. And then there's uh, what you might call general interest. You know, you might have heard something about the Dharma or you heard a teaching and it sounded promising or intriguing or perhaps uh, there was some person that you became aware of that you found inspirational like the Dalai Lama or uh, someone like that. Maybe you decided that, oh, these Buddhist people, they're pretty cool, you know. Or maybe you have um, 
had the experience of somebody that you're interested in getting interested in something like this. Or maybe it's one of those situations where, you know, uh, your girlfriend or partner or something is like into this stuff and you kind of feel like you need to scramble along to figure out what's going on. So that brings the question. So is anyone here uh, because of a partner? <laughs> okay, a truthful man. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, and this is, an, this is an interesting thing, you know, this general interest. Um, and then there are other motivations, of course. You know, for, for instance, some people who come from uh, heritage Buddhist communities, even though their families might not be Buddhist practitioners, might be interested in reclaiming something that they feel like is part of their lineage which has been lost or fill in the blank for yourself what the initial turning was. So at this point, what I'd like, I'm going to pose three different questions. And they're all vari- variations on a theme. So just get yourself into a recollective state of mind first. So turn your attention inward. So complete this sentence in your own mind. Why would one practice? Why would one practice? Okay, second question. The primary reason I practice is... The primary reason I practice is... An alternative version is the reason I don't practice is the reason I don't practice is Okay. So now, I would actually like to hear from you. So as to the first inquiry, why would one practice? What are some answers that came to you spontaneously? Yes. Calmness, stability, awareness. To live. live. Can you say more? To feel alive while living. living. Yeah. 
to find peace and to be better able to love those close. Yeah? To get closer to the truth of my life. To get closer to the truth of my life. So what came up for people in uh, regard to the question, the primary reason I practice is? So the first question was kind of generic. We're speculating about one. Sometimes when the question is asked with a uh, personal identification, personalized request for information, there's a somewhat different answer. So what is the primary reason I practice. When you answered that question, what did you get? Yeah? Accept things as they are. Accept things as they are. Deal with day-to-day anxieties and stress. Permission to stop ruminating to yourself. Seeking understanding and freedom. I just got a jumble of answers, and I think it just varies from day to day. Mm hmm. A lot of different answers varying from day to day. unsatisfactoriness in dukkha, but then because he teaches students, perhaps there's a something here that can be offered to others as well. It's bound up in the motivation. Yeah. Freedom from suffering and not causing harm. To, under, to understand sorrow, sadness, and suffering. Yeah. To train the mind and yourself to be present. To, to mm-hmm. So carryover effect in daily life. Yeah. You had something? More connection with self and others, more calm, um, less disconnection, being at peace with things the way that, that they are. Yeah? Healing and to start the day off right, setting the day on a good course. So the, these are all very interesting answers. And let me ask about the, the next question, because the next question was... The reason I don't practice is because I'm, I'm lazy. Okay. 
sloth and torpor. Yeah. Wanting to do something else. Mm-hmm. Inner resistance, and can you say more about that? Um, like, I get distracted a lot. Mm-hmm. So distraction in the sitting and some struggling there, perhaps. Or How about other people? Yeah. Fear. Fear. Hmm. About the sitting in itself or what could come up in the sitting? What could come up in the sitting? Too busy and not enough time. Yeah. <laughs> the torture of watching your mind. <laughs> and then there he did a little <laughs> and I think we all know what that is, right? <laughs> Doesn't feel like a priority. Mm-hmm. You you would be feeling that you were doing nothing in doing that. <laughs> yeah, productivity, not productive, not you know. Mm-hmm. Do, human, the human, human doing, uh, human doing. Value. Well, this is really interesting range of responses. Who else has got anything to say about motivation, not resistance, etc.? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the distraction is the clutter of life and the motivation is to get rid of it and to create some sort of clearing or space or clarity or something in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it not being a priority, that particular dimension of life, spiritual slash emotional, psychological well-being, other, other things are more priority. Well, I guess now having heard these things, that you can guess that you're not alone, right? <laughs> so... I find this rather aligned with some of the things that I hear when I work with with people on on retreat. So I here's some things that I have heard. I I may have even heard them from some of the people in this room. I don't know. I'm going to have to really think about about it, but uh, okay, so um 
so th these are examples of, of motivation uh, issues. So, so somebody will come in and, and they'll say, my life to used to be a mess and I sat every day. Now things are better. And what would the dot, dot, dot? And I find I don't sit as often. So there was some initial uh, impetus to, to practice because um, the dukkha element was in the foreground and then as the dukkha subsided, perhaps partially uh, as a consequence of doing the practice, then that was no longer enough fuel to continue to do the practice. So then another conversation that I, I ha have had with somebody is uh, somebody will come into an interview uh, on retreat or <laughs> sometimes in one of these community settings and they'll come up and say, why don't I practice? <laughs> they'll, ask, <laughs> they'll ask me, <laughs> why don't I practice? You know, so, you know, seeking to draw forth my psychic powers to <laughs> tell them, you know, why they're not doing that. And then uh, sometimes it'll come forward as how much uh, X, fill in the blank, do I have to do? How much do I have to do? This is often at the, at the end of retreats. How much do I have to do? I think at one of the last retreats I, <laughs> I taught, I, I, uh, I said, don't, don't ask me what you're going to get if you sit a half hour every day because I have no idea <laughs> what you're going to get out of it. <laughs> so don't ask me. Don't ask me. Um, or sometimes people will come in and they'll say, um, nothing is happening. I've been meditating for X years and my practice is still the same. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Nothing is happening. And uh, often I'll push back on that and I'll say, oh, so you, you've been practicing for, for uh, 20 years. And um, I'll say, yeah, and I still don't have any concentration. You know, I still don't have any concentration. I've been trying to do this jhana stuff that I read about in a book and, you know, I don't think I have it. And I, you know, I'm, nothing is happening. Nothing. And I'll say, well, so how's your life now compared to how it was 20 years ago? And they'll go, oh, well, it's a lot better. It's a lot, it's a lot better. I said, well, you know, I don't know, but maybe something was actually <laughs> happening. <laughs> Just not happening the way that, you know, you would think it should or would like it to. So, there's some significant terms or words or descriptions, descriptive terms and words that are often part of the conversation when we're talking about practice and motivation for practice. So, the first of these is sadha. Does anybody know that word? Yeah. Faith, faith and confidence. Okay, sadha, faith. Now, this is worthy of exploration 
at length, but it's a whole topic in and of itself. But if you know anything about the five spiritual faculties, which are these five uh, qualities of mind that um, um, are intrinsic capacities that we have, but which are employed and developed and brought into uh, strength and into balance as part of the process of spiritual development, you would recognize that sadha, or faith, is the first one of these. This is the first of these qualities. And the understanding is that some kind of faith, some kind of confidence, has to be present, is an intrinsic element of being able to actually make effort to really engage with things. So when we hear the word faith, of course, as Westerners, uh, there's often an immediate recoil because we put on top of that our idea that when you're talking about faith, you're talking about some sort of dogmatic creed or something. Kind of like, you know, I pledge allegiance, but it's religious. You know, like the Apostles' Creed or... Uh, something like that. this. But that's really not the way it's meant in Buddhism. So in Buddhism you could say it's the confidence to proceed with the investigation of the truth claims of Buddhism in a committed way. So faith is an important initial piece in developing motivation for practice. It's very much entwined with it. And this is calling upon a certain kind of fullness of heart and a multidimensional investigation is what results from it. So faith is understood to be something that can actually be developed to become a power of mind. A power of mind. Unshakable faith. So another word that's used is samvega. Does anybody know the meaning of that word, samvega? So that's a, yeah, that's a word that means uh, spiritual urgency. So here we're talking about the mind recognizing that it has a very important priority, a priority that is very important. And that's to develop, to seek a way, usually out of the experience of deep dukkha, deep suffering of one type or another, along the lines that I described uh, a little bit earlier when I was talking about suffering being a very powerful motivation to undertake practice and to continue with it. Because if you're really in the dukkha ditch, you can't stay there. You're going to do what you need to do to get out of there. So anything that looks to you like it could be an answer will be responded to with an urgency that has a certain kind of power, a certain kind of drive behind it. And, you know, the, if you know anything about the Buddha's own story, of course, the sto- his own story was an example of a very uh, profound, empowered spiritual urgency 
to find an understanding about what caused discretionary human suffering and how it could be unbound. But for each of us, there is likely to become a time in our life where this comes up. And, you know, for some people it's circumstances like, you know, maybe there's a lot of uh, old age sickness and death going on among the people that are close to you, or maybe it's you. But certainly there's something that fuels this strong drive to come to understand, to try to figure out what can be done in, in uh, response to this existential dilemma. So then another word that's sometimes used in talking about motivation is the word chanda. Does anybody know that one? It's called will to, will to do. So often this is kind of strength of will or the capacity to order energies to pursue certain kinds of goals. And chanda in, in itself is kind of morally neutral. It can be skillful, it can be unskillful. But certainly uh, having strong chanda is a resource in commitment to practice. The Buddha talked often about uh, a quality called apamadata. Anybody know what that is? Diligence, heed, heedfulness, diligence, diligence. If you know something about the Buddha's last words when he was getting ready to, to pass away and he was saying his last words to his disciples, and his, the last thing he said to them was something that's often translated as strive on with diligence. Strive on with diligence. He basically gave them the responsibility for their own happiness and well-being and their own opening, their own spiritual progress, right back to them. He says, you know, it's up to you. I've taught you what there is to, uh, what's necessary for you to liberate your minds. Now it's up to you. Be diligent in pursuing the path of <clears throat> uh, freedom. You may also know, if, if you know the Satipatthana Sutta and some of the translations of it, did it ping your mind at all that one of the words that is used for the Satipatthana Sutta in the Satipatthana Sutta is translated as ardent? He or she abides ardent. That's kind of an interesting word, isn't it? Ardent. When I hear that word, I kind of think of like lover-like, right? So n not uh, somebody who's doing it because they have to do it or they think that they should do it, but there's some kind of way in which the heart has fully embraced this uh, undertaking. And then um, there, there's another word that sometimes is tied into a description or an exploration of motivation for practice, and that's bodhicitta. Does anybody know what that word means? Bodhicitta, yeah. Compassion, it's related to compassion. And, and what it means is it's this understanding that you're seeking development of 
your own heart and mind partially out of wanting to be a benefit <coughs> to others to help them to uh, express metta and compassion in the world. And some of you actually <coughs> touched a little bit on that in when you described some of the motivation that was present for you in doing your own practice. So all of these these aspects, these dimensions, are something that um, are engaged in developing a committed intention to practice. And you can see how these are all energizing um, and encouraging the undertaking of actually doing what needs to be done in order to follow the path of the teachings. So, let's talk about some things that can be obstacles to developing and sustaining motivation. And you already described a number of them when we did the go-around, a number of people offered uh, things from their own experience, and and I think you'll hear some of that (coughs) said back to you again. So, if I was going to say... something that would be wise to do and which frequently isn't done is often there's not a a development or a reflection on motivation first as a practice resource. So strong motivation is a huge, huge practice resource to you, right? Because if you can't answer the question you know, why would I do this? Why should this be a priority in my life? Then you're open to the sway of all kinds of competing alternative <coughs> activities, right? So, you know, there's always the, the stuff with work or school and family or community. There, there's always uh, alternative forms or uh, of amusement or distraction that are available. If you haven't really reflected on motivation, <coughs> then it's not conscious to you. So if it's not con- conscious to you, then it doesn't empower the intention to actually practice. And intention in Buddhism is a very important factor of mind because the understanding is that the mind really develops in the direction of whatever intention is held and acted on. That's kind of the lead horse. That's the head of the horse is intention. (coughs) 
So intention is very important. Strengthening wholesome intention is a major part of the practice path because actions then flow from that piece of it. So there are some schools of Buddhism that actually work with motivation development as a primary practice. So, you know, to go back to the the point about bodhicitta, so in some of the the Mahayana schools and some of the Tibetan schools, this is very, very much a driver for practice. Has anybody practiced in any of those schools where there's been a lot of talk about bodhicitta and the importance of bodhicitta and... <clears throat> you know, the reason that you're practicing is to benefit others and, you know. You can see the power that that might have if the mind really opened to that and embraced that as a motivation. Because the motivation is no longer small. Right? The motivation has been empowered now it involves everybody. Now it's not just uh, all about whether or not it seems appealing to do something in the present. right? And some of you alluded to that a little bit when you talked about, well, I'm in a role where you know, I can influence others or maybe even teach people some, some things that would be of benefit to them. So when I, when I practice, sometimes I, you know, that comes up for me. I think about, well, you know, if I could you know, be able to help uh, the students I'm working with have better idea how to handle their emotions, I, w- I would be better off. They would be better off. Maybe there could be some spread of benefit from this. I mean, some of you may have a taste of this when you realize, okay, I'm a nicer person to live with when um, I practice than when I don't. Or an alternative version of that would be, I am able to handle a lot more responsibility, more stress. I can put myself in situations that are kind of hot flames, uh, but where there's potential benefit for my community, for myself, for others, um, because I know how to work with my mind. I want to be able to work with the difficulty that comes up internally and externally when I'm in this kind of environment and doing this kind of work. I want to be able to handle it. I want to be able to be an asset to people, a resource to people. This is all touching on bodhicitta as a motivation for practice. So... You know, you you consider some of the people that we regard as great spiritual practitioners. You know, the Dalai Lama, you know, Martin Luther King (coughs) Jr., all of these people uh, that are publicly known, they they were taking it on as a practice. But you, you had to know... You know, if you read read some of Dr. King's personal reflections, it wasn't like he walked in there and it was like, oh, I'm all nonviolent and, you know, none of this bothers me. There was plenty of internal boat rocking going on. How could there not be? But there's a certain kind of way in which the development of 
of the capacity to meet that was em fully embraced by him and it allowed him to have the power to be able to move whole systems. So, you know, those of you, for instance, who are in healthcare, those of you who are in, you know, teaching, those of you, you know, who are in caretaking roles in your own family, those of you who are members of uh, communities where there's a, a lot of suffering and difficulty. Well, you know, I could go down the list, and by the time I was done with it, you would all be find yourself in one of these groups. But if you really embrace the understanding that we are actors within a larger system, and what we do in terms of upgrading our own capacities has to do with what our communities can do, how our communities evolve, how our families are, whether our homes are places of peace, whether our workplaces are sane or insane, or at least less insane. It really makes a big difference. So, so you can see the power of in sitting down and beginning your practice to reflect in this kind of way upon motivation and to bring forward the deepest and most powerful, the most connected way of holding this is a real asset because it makes you willing through the engagement of your heart to do what must be done. So developing this in yourself is a really important uh, resource. Now sometimes we have an obstacle in developing and sustaining a strong motivation in having too narrow an idea about what practice actually is. So, so when I said to you, I asked you those questions about practice and what, you know, what your motivation is or why you do or why you don't. Did you take me to be asking you about meditation? Yes. So that would be a yes? That would be a yes. Well, isn't that interesting? Because, because it is uh, an eightfold path after all. Right? The practice path is an eightfold practice path. So, you know, this is very characteristic of Western Dharma practices. We, you know, we zoom right in on the meditation practice and you know, that's it and that's what counts. And that's part of it, but that's certainly not all of it. So you may already be practicing some elements of the path consistently and not be recognizing this. So to use an, uh, an image. So I've got this Fitbit thing here that... You know, shows this papacy of walking today, but nevertheless. Okay, so one of the things I figured out about this thing was it doesn't register everything. 
right? So certain things, like, you know, if I go to the gym and I, you know, use the elliptical, it usually doesn't register that. You know, if I do, do like, weight lifting, it doesn't recognize that. So I have to, like, go back into the dashboard and, you know, add some things, and, you know, put in weight training and put in elliptical and stuff. And then it registers it. You know, it adds it into the minutes, but it still doesn't show it on the first screen. So our practice is a little bit like this, right? So, for instance, you might be largely observing the five lay precepts, but not seeing them as practice. So... And this is true also for other practices, like the the practices of dana and generosity, <clears throat> resolve, patience, etc. So you know you might need to kind of hand enter this information into your consciousness. You know, become conscious of it, actually embrace it, and do it with intention. Because that within the, the scheme of Buddhist understanding, it's always better to be conscious. It's always better to be mindful of what you're doing. So likewise, you may not actually recognize practice opportunities in your current life. <clears throat> so we already talked about how when I asked about practice, everybody thought it was you know a question about meditation, even though I didn't actually say that. But that goes along with the idea that often we have this uh, feeling that practice is this special set-apart thing which requires special circumstances. And it's true, some practices benefit from particular circumstances, but many of them actually don't. Many practices can be done kind of on the fly. So, for instance, you could say that body, speech, and mind, actions of body, speech, and mind are always going on. They're always present. They can be known mindfully if we remember to do that, if we train the mind to be able to do that. So there's this classic story about um, Kamala masters. Has anybody ever studied with her? Yeah, she's great. She, she's been a teacher uh, of mine. And one of the interesting things about Kamala is that when she started practicing, she was basically uh, a person with children, young children that she had primary responsibility for, and she was also working. So as far as being able to, like, duck out and go to CIMC on Wednesday night or, you know, go to IMS for a week-long retreat, this was just not what was really possible. But she really, really, really wanted to practice. So she tells a story about how she wound up, in addition to her other duties, uh, helping the teacher uh, Munindraji recover from surgery and he was actually staying in her home so this is I guess was a little add-on on top of the job and the small children and all the rest of that 
So he's li- he's living with her temporarily, and she's talking with him about, you know, I I really want to practice, but I can't. And he said to her, "Why are you talking about?" No, he's I'm sure it was much more. <laughs> he he said to her, "What do you do all the time? You know, what are some things that you you do every day that's just part of your routine, and you have to do them? It's just your stuff that you do." And she said, well, I do the laundry. And he said, well, describe that. And she said, well, I, you know, I, I take the clothes out of the hamper, I put them in the laundry ba- basket, I carry it down the hall, you know, I open the lid of the washer, I put them in, I put the, you know, stuff in, I close it, and then I... And then I go back and I get them and I put them in the dryer and turn it and then I take them out and then I fold them and then I put them away. And he said, well, what else do you do? And she said, well, I do the dishes. You know, I do the dishes several times a day. And he said, well, describe what that is. He said, well, I go to the sink and I turn on the water and, you know, I put in the, and I, right, went through the whole routine and some detail about it was. And he said, there's no reason you can't practice with that. That's your practice. Practice with that. Be aware when you're doing that. Be mindfully present when you're doing these things that that you might be thinking of as being things that are keeping you from practice or wasted time or chores that, you know, you, you see the point? And what what was remarkable about her, of course, and different from the average worldling is she undertook that as an actual practice. And lo and behold, found that it actually did serve as a practice. So for some of us, the, the special circumstances aren't readily available to Right? I had the experience of taking uh, care of my mother when she was 85 and had heart surgery, and I, I wound up going to stay with her at her home for about three and a half weeks. And the experience was, you know, she was in her bedroom and I was in the other bedroom downstairs, and in the middle of the night, if she needed anything, she would ring this little bell. Ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding. So, of course... When I was laying down, I was like, you know, there's part of my mind that was like listening for the bell, listening for the bell. Oh, let me, you know. And then I would like wake up out of a sleep and, you know, jump up and like go in there and see what, you know, if she's okay and what she needed. But it was kind of like a, a 24 day availability for three and a half weeks. You know, there was the management of the medications, there was, you know, helping her you know, with her physical needs, preparing food, you know, maintaining the household, you know, coordinating the visits from the nurse practitioner and the doctor's appointments and going to the pharmacy and, you know, making sure the dogs went outside and, you know, this, you know, doing the laundry, doing the, right? It was a practice, right? When you think about what's involved and being in those sorts of situations, if you hold it that way, think about what you got going on. You've got, 
you know, patience going on, right? You've, there's compassion going on. There's generosity going on. There's goodwill going on. There's equanimity going on, right? These are not outside the practice or different. This is seeing your life and circumstances through the lens of the Dharma, right? So it's not like it only counts when you're at CIMC or you're only on the cushion, but you have to encourage the mind to be able to hold it that way, to hold it that way. I, I can remember as, you know, part of this, my sister was staying there too, which she would go away during the day to work, which she re- said was her vacation. She would, <laughs> she would leave the house and go to work. I can remember when my mother got like a little bit better and a little bit stronger. Oh, I, I would, you know, have to go out and do grocery shopping and, you know, it got to the point where I could like leave her for like, you know, maybe an hour at a time or something and, and she had my phone number and stuff. My sister was going to be home soon. And it, it felt like vacation, you know. It was like, oh, I get to go to the market, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, I get to go to the market. <laughs> Maybe I can stop and get gas, you know. <laughs> it's like string, stringing out another, you know, ten minutes. But, you know, sometimes these situations that, that we experience or know as being very compressive can actually be profitable, can be beneficial to us as long as we hold it that way and we don't find ourselves in situations where we're where we're drained by it or overwhelmed by it right so so another practice opportunity of course is the practice of sila the practice of Morality. Some people undertake an investigation of the precepts and the practice of the precepts, the practice of sila, as a primary practice. Now, does that sound very contracted to you? We bring our Western, you know, rule-following mind to this. Oh, I got to be perfect. I got to make no mistakes. I got to, you know... That's how we tend to hold it. And this, this perfectionism is really can really be an obstacle for, to us being willing to practice at all, right? So this shows up also in the idea about meditation, what your meditation practice uh, should be. You know, my practice should be this, and it's not. Uh, it's not like that, so then I don't want to do it. So examples of this would be, you know, if I can't sit an hour every day, then it's no good. Right? It's kind of like all or nothing mind. Well, I can't sit an hour every day, so, you know, I might as well not sit at all, you know? Which is kind of along the lines of saying, like, okay, you know, I just had too much to eat at Thanksgiving, and, you know, I already had that second piece of pie and everything. You know, I might as well eat the <laughs> eat the rest of it, you know? It's kind of like crazy thinking, but... Uh, no, I, you know, I can't right. stay in the moment with things is really better, you know. Or may, sometimes people will go, well, you know, I'm thinking all the time. I sit down and I just think, 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 think. 
Well, you know, a lot of daily life meditation practice until you get over some a kind of hump with it. And even sometimes afterwards is in the morning you're planning, think, 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 planning, 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 and at night you're reviewing. Remembering, 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 and then maybe some planning about tomorrow. Planning, 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 planning. That's just such a frequent channel for us. It it takes uh, experience to really learn the pathways to be able to get under under that, and then sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's a -a think-a-thon. So can there be some some compassion, you know? And perhaps the development of some capacity to learn to work with thought itself as a meditation object. And I'm sure there's some instruction here for you in learning how to do that, right? They talk about that here at CIMC, working with thought. So <clears throat> another potential obstacle is sometimes uh, stuff comes up that is... Uh, unpleasant and difficult to be with. Uh, Therefore, the sitting itself is unpleasant and difficult to be with and perhaps overwhelming and not useful. Now, this is a kind of a nuanced area, and and some of you mentioned that as a reason not to sit. You know, sometimes there's a kind of way in which very painful stuff can come up uh, where the system is flooded, well, you know, if that's what the experience is every time that you sit down, that's probably an indication that there may be some other tools that you would want to engage or employ to address that, per- that particular place of dukkha in order to support your immediate well-being and release from suffering and to strengthen your capacity to to do meditation practice. So, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you may think that uh, Dharma teachers have it all together until you you get to know some. And then you start to realize, okay, (laughs) yes, human beings can be very good, human beings can be very wise, human beings can have many wonderful qualities, and you know what? They're still human beings, right? So it's a it, interesting thing to me that I think of the Western Dharma teachers. I think just about everyone that I know um, has probably done at least some psychotherapy. You know, might be spot treatments, <laughs> but... <laughs> Sometimes the spot doesn't come out, but <laughs> but but it's po- uh, an important pointing to right because sometimes we come to practice with the idea that you know we're going to get at everything, every form of particular suffering in this particular way with this particular method, and kind of like this is the only, you know, this is the tool that we're going to use for everything. But while it's beneficial and a support to any kind of undertaking. It's not necessarily the best tool for everything. So sometimes other means need to be brought in. Like, for instance, if there's a trauma, a strong trauma history, and that's part of what happens when you sit. Every time you sit, you know, like, particular things come up, and, you know, that's a a central nervous 
um, system reaction, that mindfulness alone in its pure kind of form is probably not going to easily undercut. It would be skillful in that kind of circumstances, for instance, to perhaps um, investigate something like somatic experiencing where you learn to use mindfulness in a way that uh, keeps the lid from blowing off the pot every time you sit, you know, kind of where you learn to turn down the flames, you know, so, you know, things can simmer, but mindfulness can be maintained. Okay, so... Another uh, obstacle is... um, Framing the whole deal about making effort negatively. So this is when you don't read into this any kind of meaning, value, joy, etc. So, you know, so is this like a chore on the chore list, you know? So I don't know about you, but you think about some of the, the, the teenage exhortations that I can remember receiving receiving, you know, <laughs> well, they're kind of along the line of, well, you better get yourself motivated because if you keep getting that mark in math, then da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, you better get yourself motivated, right? Or, okay, I've got to get myself motivated to clean the bathroom. <clears throat> got to get myself motivated to scrub the kitchen floor or something like that. You know, so if the mind's reaction is, "Oh God, another thing to do," "Oh God, another thing I've got to do," that's really not the right fuel for the kind of effort that's necessary. So, I mean, hair shirts are kind of a tough sell for most people. You know, here, put this on, motivate yourself. You know. It's like it does it early. I think I'll have some of that, you know. Oh. So it would be a whole different thing if as part of your uh, motivation reflection in practice, say, in your daily sit, there was a focus on things like how uh, wonderful it is to be able to explore these teachings how fortunate I am to be able to have the health of body and mind and enough time to be able to do this. How beautiful it is to be able to shape my heart and mind in the direction of liberation. So that's very different from I've got to get myself motivated to clean the bathroom, right? So there's a certain kind of way in which moistening the mind is sometimes the way it's phrased. Moistening the mind is very skillful. You know, practicing in a way, doing practices that awaken joy and beautiful qualities that make you conscious of the overall pleasant direction of the path. So this 
getting your whole system of body and mind on board with this undertaking is very much your own individual act of creativity. How do you talk to yourself about what it is that you're doing when you're doing these practices or considering doing these practices? So gratitude, appreciation, you know, thinking about the the life of the Buddha, thinking about the value of the teachings, thinking with gratitude and appreciation of the cultures and the the practitioners that have hand carried or mind carried these teachings for twenty six hundred years from mind to mind to mind to mind. All these people who have found profound value in this undertaking, how can you inspire yourself by how you reflect on these kinds of things? To open up willingness of a beautiful nature. And of course, you know, there are other ways to heighten urgency, to choose to heighten urgency. So, There's, a, for an ex- example, the five pr- uh, daily reflections. Have people heard of those? The f- who, who, raise your hand if you've heard of the five daily reflections. Okay. So I talked about the arousing of beautiful and wholesome qualities of mind and how they support motivation and how powerful that can be, how uplifting that can be, how that can help create willingness. So that kind of falls under the the second box I described as a general category of motivation for practice. Things could be better, things could be open, things could be developed. That uplifting motivation. And then there's the reflections that summon urgency. Samvega, this quality of spiritual urgency. So here's the five daily reflections that the Buddha says can kind of serve the butt-kicking that sometimes is part of skillful reflection. So he says, these are traditionally recited in the morning. Reflecting in this way is understood to have an influence on the choices one might make each day. One, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. Two, I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. Three, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. Four, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Five, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my action, related to my action, abide supported by my action. Whatever action I shall do for good or ill, of that I shall be the heir. It's a direct pointing to an understanding of karma. So you can see, you know, this this is kind of the stick part, right? So that's rather sobering. 
So in one of the small groups that, that I had at a recent retreat, when somebody asked me that question, and he framed it, well, you know, my life used to be really hard and difficult, and I, you know, I practiced a lot, and now things are better, and I, and I, you know, don't really find much interest in practicing. And then he kind of looked at me like, and I looked at him and I saw, oh, you're about my age. I said, well, how about this? Why don't you think about this every morning? <laughs> I, th- I think you might find, you know, a little bit more fire here to, uh, to proceed uh, with this investigation while you're able. You know, given the aging and the sickening and the dying and, you know, that. You've got the circumstances, you know. You got to, you know, turn up turn up the flame under your behind a little bit here by choosing to consider certain realities. So that's about all we can uh really discuss here. The last point I'll just say is to really consider, really reflect on, really review what your current practices are and what practice instructions you're giving yourself to see if they're skillful in a strategic kind of way and to actually revise them as is appropriate. So whatever practice instructions that you're giving yourself, first of all, can you identify what they are? So this is something for you to really think about. What is your field of practice? What practice instructions do you give yourself? So you need to be conscious of both of those things. Right? So practice instructions should be such that they're within range for you to do with committed effort. So for instance, you know, if you're in a situation where you're, you know, you're home taking care of, you know, your elderly mother and have 24-hour availability, you know, maybe that's not the time to try to do, like, for the first time to try to do exclusive practice on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils. I mean, maybe it is. If you can do it, it, it's really, it's kind of a nice restorative kind of thing, but that's probably not really what's going on. It's probably more compassion practice. Maybe it's more a practice of dropping in the compassion phrases, you know, to watch your own mind stream and to recognize the wholesome states that are present there during the course of the day, to work to stay embodied mindfulness of the body and body sensations as you're doing all the doings that you're doing during and taking care of somebody. So that that's our exploration for the evening. So I hope you know I hope there's something in here that you can uh, relate to and make use of because that's really the whole point of it. Not just an intellectual, you know, understanding of things, but really turning your mind in the direction of reflection about how you understand these things and how how you hold them. And now you have an idea of a whole 
uh, set of questions and investigations that you can undertake in the interest of strengthening your your own motivation and getting some fuel for uh, the journey that will really power uh, the effort that's needed for this gradual path, this gradual path, which calls on us to be able to sustain uh, appropriate effort over time. So it's not, you know, a binge and bust kind of journey here. It's more like a pilgrimage kind of thing. Well, I didn't think I had that much to say, but I guess I did. So, so we're about at the end of our time. Um, maybe I'll take five minutes of questions if people, anyone has a burning question. Does anybody have a question? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.